0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Sustainable Finance Podcast. My name is Paul Ellis, and I'm your host for these programs about developments in this fast-growing industry. When you're the third-generation co-owner of a company that manufactures plastic bags for your family's financial well-being, The idea of recreating your business operations model to be more environmentally friendly and sustainable could easily be the stuff of nightmares, cold sweats, and sanity checks. For Trent Romer and Clearview Bag Company, however, sustainability planning has been a way to reduce expenses, increase revenue, and generate more profit for the family business. Trent is joining me for this episode of the Sustainable Finance Podcast to discuss how the 60 million business owners, small business owners in the U.S., can transition their business operations models toward sustainability by choosing a slingshot versus a moonshot approach. Hello, Trent, and welcome to the Sustainable Finance Podcast.
1: Hi, Paul. Uh, it's an honor to be here. I'm excited to uh, to share a sort of a perspective from uh, small and medium-sized companies.
0: That's great. And Trent is also an author of two books about his, his transition and his move to sustainable business models. So we're going to jump right into the questions here. And the first one, Trent, is did you have a, a moment in your journey towards sustainability for your Personal business that accelerated your move in that direction.
1: Yeah, that's a that's a good question and one I sort of contemplate. But actually, it's a pretty easy question for me. Um, I think for a long time, I grew up in this uh, plastic bag manufacturing business. My grandfather started it in 1961. My father owned it for the next 20 years. My brother and I owned it from uh, 2000 to 2021. My father's one of 11. I have 32 first cousins, so it's very much a family-owned and operated business. But somewhere around uh, the 2010s, uh, I started to feel uneasy about the product that we made, um, plastic being uh, being the primary uh, product that we made in our conversion process. And the National Geographic June 2018 cover showed a plastic bag sticking out of the ocean that looked like an iceberg. And the the caption on that June 2018 cover said plastic or planet, and it really uh, uh, captured what I had thought about for a long time and brought it to sort of a national attention, that plastic was increasingly finding its way uh, to the natural environment, and it was as prevalent uh, uh, as—it was so prevalent uh, that National Geographic did this long story about it. Within that uh, addition— uh, there was some good parts about plastic with uh, light weighting and, and things like that, but it was really about how plastics have proliferated in the environment uh, and in our daily lives. And so my journey sort of began almost with that cover. And I, I wish I could say it started out of of, of um, eagerness. It probably started out of fear um, that I was fearful of what was going to happen to our business and the 70 families that we supported and I think what I learned um, is I always sort of viewed this survival or uh preservation. And I think what sustainability has allowed me to do is make that an and. It's survival and preservation. And I think over the course of time, that's really what I, I've sort of learned and and been interested in.
0: Okay, well that's a really good place to start, thank you. And now we we wanna talk a little bit about this family business that you co-own uh, and some of the sustainability initiatives that you've implemented within the business.
1: Yeah, so when I sort of saw this cover and began to sort of try to figure out what we were gonna do next, I did a lot of educational things, I did a lot of travel to try and learn um, what others were doing in this space. And what I think, what I really tried to lean into was what we had to do was something that was good for the business and the environment. It couldn't it couldn't be for one or the other. We had to try and find those initiatives that fit both. And I'll sort of detail four quickly for you. The first one was a waste reduction uh, program. You know, you hear uh, reduce, uh, reuse, recycle. Reduce is the first one, right? So we were like, I think our 70 employees could really lean into that Waste reduction to create the $17 million in sales that our our company uh, had done. We created 600,000 pounds of waste internally to create that product. I went to our production manager back in 2019 and I said, What if we were to reduce our waste by 25% or 150,000 pounds? He paused, he looked at me, and he said, It would cause us to act in a different way. And I said, Exactly, right? That's what we want. We need to sort of rethink how we're doing this. So there was a bunch of things that we did internally. We used to have uh, all, a lot of waste uh, was created out of trimming down larger sizes. And we began to repurpose that waste into making uh, new jobs. Um, we simply ordered less. So to make custom packaging, you have to order over-order to make over-order the raw materials to make sure that you have enough built in there for internal scrap. We simply just ordered less. And we talked to our internal people and said, we don't have to over-order 20%. We can over-order maybe 12% and still meet the customer demand. So it was sort of a little bit of a mindset. We also did sort of a fun, we called it waste week. It was sort of modeled after shark week. Um, I don't think about sharks, but once a year, but when Discovery Channel does that concentrated week of of shark programming in July, I I engage in that. And we sort of use that same idea in in our company and we called it waste week where we did a bunch of uh, informational session educational sessions we had a couple of speakers come in so all of our um employees went through this this week of concentrated awareness on waste we had a food truck at the end of the week we got t-shirts so it really raised awareness and education on waste so that one was reducing that waste and we did that within a year's time which was super fun Second, we changed our company vision. Um, we wanted to include uh, something beyond just trying to be profitable. So it was healthy planet, healthy people, healthy company. And we put people in the middle because it was so key to sort of what we've always been. We participated in local cleanup efforts. We've done the Riverkeeper for six years running now. We do that uh, in early May, uh, which was a, a real act of trying to clean up the environment. And then the fourth thing that we did uh, what. We introduced three new materials into the marketplace, three more sustainable materials. I'll quickly tell you, we started in in trying to figure out how what, what materials we were going to carry. We started with 10 different ones, and we went through a three-question vetting program. The first was, could we use a, the, uh, the new material on existing equipment? Second was, could I get the material if we ran out? And third was, is it priced reasonably? So we, we went through that vetting process and we came up with three materials that we now carry and now in stock. One is a certified compostable material. One is a post-consumer recycled content material. And one is a bio-based material. So those three have grown to be 7% of our sales now. So uh, over the course of three years, um, it's grown to be an increasingly significant part of the overall uh, product mix.
0: You know, Trent, you also have uh, another professional association uh, now with Longview Capital, and you are a sustainability operating partner for this private equity firm. How do you approach sustainability in your current role uh, with Longview Capital?
1: Yeah, it's a good good question. And um, it, it was interesting, this transition for me, um, we began this sustainability um, journey uh, back in 2018 with Clearview. And then we started to get some uh, interest from outside investment for our company. And we sold our um, a large portion of the company to Longview Capital. And they liked our sustainability plan and programming. They asked me to come on and be a sustainability operating partner to try to in- implement sustainability programs within their other portfolio companies. And I said to them, I know a lot about the plastics industry and the packaging industry. I don't know a lot about uh, being a sustainability operating partner. And the uh, the person uh, or the partners there said, "Hey, you know, we trust you, and we and you'll figure it out." And uh, so I went back to school, did some things, and really began to try to invest myself in that process. And what I really learned, or I have learned, is I try and meet them where they are, meaning. I don't try to overwhelm them um, be it a a medical device company or a fertility clinic or a logistics company and i sort of go through this process of i try and lead them all through a stakeholder view every company has stakeholders interested in the business employees uh, customers regulation supply chains um non-governmental organizations all of these stakeholders are interested in the business and I think when companies take an honest view of their stakeholders, they realize that from some places, somewhere on those stakeholder continuum, there being a uh, pressure is being applied for the company to move in a more sustainable direction. And I think what the stakeholder view does is it takes away opinion. This isn't what Trent's saying. This isn't what you know, maybe somebody else is saying. It It sort of strips out that political opinion idea and says, hey, look, look at it from a stakeholder view. And they sort of take an honest approach to it. Once we figure out what stakeholders are interested in, we put them through a materiality assessment to try and say, what is a priority of these issues stakeholders are bringing up? What are the priority issue for your business? Uh, Then we say, okay, now we figured out the priority issues. What are some authentic actions to address those issues? And then fourth, we communicate back to stakeholders. So in four words, way oversimplified, but it's stakeholder materiality, authentic action, communicate. Those four things we really try and lean into. And I'll tell you a quick little story that relates to, um, uh, Mike Wallace, who was on your, uh, podcast yes, over the summer. Please
0: do Michael. Yeah. Glad to hear you. Uh, you're, you're bringing him up in, in this program.
1: He was great. I, I always learn a lot from, from your guests and I appreciate that. And he went into depth about carbon accounting. Um, and, what we do, I'll sort of show you the sort of the difference between larger companies and and smaller medium sized companies that the challenges that that I face as a, as an operating partner, uh, but I hopefully it frames it out. So on all of our uh, portfolio companies, this past summer we gave them a sixty question survey, and the survey was essentially to try to establish an assessment: where are they uh, in terms of a bunch of these questions? And I'll point out two questions. The first question was. Are you counting your emissions? 0 for 15. 15 companies asked under the portfolio, none of them doing it. The question right after that was, are any of your major customers asking you to count? 0 for 15. So they're not counting because they're not being asked to count. So it's a hard sell on a profitability with small and medium-sized companies who all these people are doing a thousand different things. They don't have a sustainability department. Um, You know, so how do we get them to sort of see into the future a little bit? And but yet they all know that's that counting emissions and climate change is a big issue to a lot of their stakeholders. Um, And what Michael brought up was the two major, to me, tailwinds for people like me are regulation and big business. When those two things happen, that has such a trickle down effect to supply chain. So those big businesses, when they have sustainability goals and they have uh, greenhouse gas emission goals, the scope uh, three emissions for those companies are the scope one and two emissions you know, for the small and medium-sized companies. So that's sort of where that we're still not there. I don't think that bridge is perfectly um, uh, connected, but I'm hoping as we assess every 12 to 18 months, those two questions that I just answered, I'm not over, right? It They begin to see that this is a real opportunity to differentiate yourself in a business sense to say, hey, what if you could advertise as a small and medium-sized business? We've counted our emissions. If you'd like to collaborate and partner with us, we can help your emissions too. There's a selling piece there too. That's a little bit of a um, boat too far right now, I think, for for some small and medium-sized companies. But it's certainly on their minds. And as this becomes more and more an issue, I want them to be, I call it, sustainability ready so that they're ready for this sort of longer term. I hope that makes sense.
0: You know, that makes a tremendous amount of sense uh, to me, Trent. And I just want to um, pass on the word to another firm that we we are doing regular programming with, uh, and that is Novada. I don't know if you're familiar with their Business, But essentially, they are an on-ramp, a nonprofit online ramp company to give private equity and venture capital firms the opportunity to distribute sustainability issues and ideas and frameworks to all of their small business owners clients. And they've become very popular over the last few years, and they're a great group of people. And uh, you, if, if your clients uh, from Longview don't have a relationship with someone like uh, Nevada, I would suggest that they, they engage. Uh,
1: if I could, Paul, I know Nevada. Oh, good. So six months ago, one of the initiatives as the sustainability operating partner was, how am I going to do this? Are we, am I going to use spreadsheets and assessments and, you know, Word files, or can I bring this into a software package where I can ask all of our uh, companies to fill out? We vetted out three different software companies. Nevada was one of them, and they were super, really, really good, exactly what the doctor ordered in, a, in so many different ways. But as I engaged with um, Longview and the uh, portfolio companies, I didn't think we were ready I didn't think we were ready to sort of take that step. But I do think as we've just done an assessment, as as we engage in different programming throughout this year, I think they're going to begin to really see that value. I didn't want to overwhelm them. And I think dropping a software package on them would have felt overwhelming. And it goes back to that initial comment that I I try to adhere to. I want to meet them where they are. If I overwhelm them, I could get a cold shoulder and I don't want that. I want them. I was in those shoes, right? I was a business owner and had so many things to do. Um, so Nevada, I can see them as being a super, super partner. They have a great product and I, I appreciate you bringing that up.
0: Well, good. Well, thanks very much. Uh, I, I really enjoy working with them as well. So now tell us about your target audience for the book that you released. Um, back in September of 2023. The title is This Is Our Home, and it was your second book. So tell us about this one.
1: This one. Uh, so I, I wrote this book for individuals and for people who want to move in a sustainable direction, but they feel overwhelmed, right, between news stories and what is just one person going to do uh, in terms of trying to move in a more sustainable direction. So I think the book was really written to try to help people to think, to act, and to communicate in a more sustainable direction. And the book, the, both of my books, I tried to write them as a story, as a nonfiction narrative where you're sort of engaged in a story and not just being thrown facts and ideas and thoughts, but try to put them in a story context that allows the reader to engage and learn sort of as they go. Really, what I'm trying to do is two things. I, the book tries to answer two questions. One to try and get them to start their sustainability journey. And number two, once they start, what do they do next? Um, and I try to answer those two questions um, in sort of this story of what is my hometown, which uh, my hometown is Nassau, New York. And just outside of Nassau is a, uh, a super site. So there's, there was a landfill there that was from 1952 to 1968. Toxic waste was dumped in open pits. Um, uh, that, uh, 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 waste, uh, filtered down to Nassau Lake and Nassau Lake has been uninhabitable for 40 years, 50 years. Um, and I grew up in, in, in the surrounding town to that. So there's a, there's a whole sustainability story associated with Superfund sites and, and how prevalent they are. I think the, the statistic is 22% of Americans live within three miles of a Superfund site. So this Nassau story isn't just a Nassau story. And I, and I visited other Superfund sites to sort of try and make that connection. So through Superfund sites and through so going to some uh, places of extreme environmental beauty, like um, the Rachel Carson Wildlife Preserve and Yosemite National Park, those imagery, I, I feel like the answers to our sustainability journeys are found in those places. And I went to those places and share them in the book.
0: Okay. Well, good. That That's a great way to think about it is to, Make sure that you're having experiences across the spectrum.
1: Yeah, I think of super fun sites too when you go there and you learn about them. And I sort of have this weird, uh, I enjoy learning about super fun sites, is you just know what you don't want, right? I think a lot of times figuring out what you do want, the best way to start is just figure out what you don't want. And that begins to sort of formulate the path forward.
0: So now, as you've already mentioned, you have written two books. The first one you wrote in 2021 is titled Finding Sustainability. So what's the connection between the two books?
1: So the first book, as I, um, back in 2018, when I saw this June 20, uh, June 2018 cover, of the National Geographic sort of set me off on this journey. And the journey included a lot of educational sessions. Um, I, I, applied to the the Harvard School for uh, Executive Education Leadership. It was a, a week-long educational session on campus. I got accepted, which was uh, overwhelming and exciting. So I spent a week there. Uh, I went to Europe to learn about sustainability through some conferences there because they're a little bit ahead of, of where we are. Um, and I visited a bunch of places. So I began to write about these places and they turned into blog posts and they turned into the chapters really of the book. And it's really charts, the first book, Finding Sustainability, helps companies find sustainability um, and try to move in that direction and documents a lot of our journeys. And the most popular question I got out of that journey was the book cover. The book cover shows a person kayaking in sort of this serene setting. And so many people came up to me and said, is that you on the cover? Who is that on the cover? And I thought to myself, if I had written this the way I wanted, I was hoping you, as the reader, would see yourself as a person that needs to engage in some kind of journey. But clearly, because I was being asked that question, I don't think the reader felt like it was their journey to explore. So the first book's about the business journey, and the second book is really about the reader and trying to get the reader to realize that they may have their own journey uh, sorted to explore.
0: Well, and that's a perfect segue into our next question is what do you think would help other small business owners to learn about transition to sustainability and have similar experiences or their own individual experiences like what you have had?
1: I think about three things when I, I think about that question. Um, the first one is, and probably the uh, the one that is most practical is There's a cost of inaction. You know, inaction is a cost. So I I think about this in four ways. First, waste. You know, I I always refer to this study back in 2019 that found 77% of what a typical business throws away as waste isn't actually waste at all, right? So you can repurpose a lot of different things that you don't see as a resource. So I think the cost of inaction is you're overpaying for raw materials and waste pickup. I think there's a whole customer base out there longing for uh, authentic, sustainable products. So I think if you don't engage in that space, the cost of inaction is market share, right? You're losing market share if you don't sort of have a product or service in that space. I think it's clear that employees who believe that their employers are interested in their health and well-being in an authentic way, they're much more likely to stay with you and much more likely to be productive So I think the cost of inaction in that space is, you know, a disengaged workforce or constant turnover. And I think regulation is also a thing that I think we all need to keep up on because, you know, at some point the SEC is going to come down with this uh, carbon accounting rule for publicly traded companies. And that's going to have such an effect on their upstream effect on on their upstream supply chain. So I think there's a cost of inaction of you don't, if you're not in tune with this. You're going to be increasingly scrutinized and pressured. So I think there's a cost of inaction that I think if you re- recognize that sort of at a fundamental level, it'll cause you to move more aggressively. Two other things I want to add. I always like these two statements. If you're waiting for the perfect uh, path, there isn't one. There's no perfect product. Every product, every service has some kind of shadow. Um, and if you're waiting for that perfect scenario, there probably isn't one. So get on that path and start moving and the other thing is, uh, and this was brought up to me by one of my professors, said, if you're waiting for somebody to lead, it's probably you we are waiting for. And I really emphasize that to people because I think a lot of us are sitting around like, well, I don't know. And, and if you're waiting, you're probably the target. And, and I, I always say we need you. So, um, you know, sort of begin to engage, realize there's nothing perfect out there and you start to learn and move in a positive direction.
0: You know, Trent, tell us a little bit more of your story or give us a quote uh, to share with other business owners that we know maybe locally or regionally that we work with in our communities that captures your journey and the learnings that you've experienced in this process.
1: Yeah, I think about it. I'll tell you a quick little story if we have time. Do we okay with that? Yeah, okay. So it's a short little story. I um applied to, along with uh, another person, uh, to jointly do a TEDx Boston talk. Uh, that was in November of 2022. Uh, we applied, uh, we went through some screening, and they really liked our idea, and so we got in. Um, so this set in motion this uh, preparation time uh, to to show up at the MIT Lab Media Center uh, last November and realizing that there's no PowerPoint. You're out there. It, it's all memorization. You got 12 minutes. There's a clock. There's an audience. Um, you're almost on a tight, uh, tight rope, you know, with no, there's no net underneath you. So I showed up that day and everything was there. Makeup station, huge, beautiful spread. Once you're done with your talk, um, the, the the studio was, you know, 500 seats and cameras and big TVs behind and TEDx Boston and big red letters, the big red dot on the stage, right? It was, I was becoming overwhelmed a little bit. So about 20 minutes before our session started, I'm in line backstage and just trying to have idle chat with people around you to pass the time. And I invariably asked the person in front of me, what, you know, what do you do? And she said, I'm an astronaut. And I thought to myself, well, I know there's only about 500 astronauts in the history of the world, and she's on before me, and these nerves that I had just sort of overwhelmed me. I just said to my partner, I'll be right back. And I went to the bathroom, I did some deep breathing, I went back over what I was going to say, I got back in line, and thankfully... It, it went pretty well. I, I enjoyed the process, but boy, Paul, I was relieved when it was over. I haven't been that nervous since playing basketball back in the day. And, and so anyway, so on my way home to bring us sort of bring it to roost, I thought to myself, what would I have said if she asked me what I did? And I said to myself, I think I would have said I'm not an astronaut <laughs> because and I think that's the whole point of it. You don't have to be an astronaut. You don't have to be the CEO of a publicly traded company. You don't have to be a professor at a high-end institution. I think sustainability is for all of us. And knowing that 50% of of, uh, the workforce is employed in small and medium-sized businesses, we can all move in that direction and it could be sustainable and and profitable. So I think that sort of experience was as nervous as I've been, uh, and, and I can't even remember when, but I think it all came back to me at the end and sort of self-reflecting on that and really saying, this is who I am. You know, I'm not no, not super well credentialed in any of these things. I'm not an astronaut. Um, but I think there's some real movement that we can all and have a really, really big impact in this space.
0: Trent, thanks so much for sharing that. Very personal and also very interesting story about the kinds of opportunities that you are creating for yourself as a a sustainable visionary for the future, if you will, let's say. Now, Trent, where online can our listeners learn more about your work in Transition Finance and how can followers of the Sustainable Finance Podcast contact you with questions about the topics that we discussed in today's episode?
1: Well, again, thank you so much for this conversation. I always love talking about this. I have a passion for this space and uh, I always learn. Um, my website's the best way to, to find me www.trentromer.com. My books are up there. I have an online course now, uh, I have a newsletter. So, that's the best way if you hit the contact that that will land right in my inbox. So, thank you very much.
0: Terrific. Well, thanks very much again for your time today, Trent Romer, author of Finding Sustainability and This is Our Home. And to our followers, join us again next week for another episode. I'm Paul Ellis, and this is the Sustainable Finance Podcast. <music>